0: He might have lived almost 2,400 years ago, but I promise you, this is a guy who has shaped the way you think. So today on The Voice of Prophecy, I'll tell you who he was, how he influenced you, and why he was dead wrong. Welcome to another edition of The Voice of Prophecy. I'm your host, Sean Boonstra, and today we're going to take a little visit to the ancient past and talk about the way that Greek philosophers have shaped the way you think. So genetically, you might be Scottish, you might be German or African or Asian, but if you live in the Western world, your brain, at least to some extent, is Greek, And the reason for that, of course, is because Greek philosophers, to a large extent, gave us the intellectual and philosophical foundations for Western civilization. Their culture, their education, were still front and center for the development of the Roman Empire, so they hung on to Greek philosophy and spread it to all of Europe. That's what gave birth to our civilization, our way of thinking. So, names like Socrates, Pythagoras— Aristotle, Plato, these are people that everybody's heard of even if they've never read anything these philosophers wrote or said. They're household names, and for good reason. Because to a large extent, these people, these Greek philosophers, have shaped the way you think. And for a lot of people, the name that's right at the top of the chart is Plato, who was a student of Socrates, and he lived some 2,400 years ago in the city of Athens. And chances are, if you went to college, you were forced to wade your way through some of Plato's so-called greats, like Phaedo or Credo or the Republic, which was actually required reading for political science majors like me when I went to school. These are the books that have dramatically affected the way we think in Western civilization. These are the books that have given shape to the way we do just about everything from government to education. Of course, over the centuries, there have been a lot of other influences. I mean, there's been a lot of time that's gone by, a lot of water under the bridge. But there is no denying the impact of Plato, particularly when it comes to his theory of forms. Now, I know that when you tuned in today, you weren't exactly expecting a course in philosophy, but I hope you'll bear with me because this is really important. You're going to find out that even Christian thinking has been powerfully influenced by this man. So, let me show you what I mean. Just like you, Plato looked around at the world and he realized this is an imperfect place. Now, Christians explain that reality, the imperfection of our planet, by the fall of man we say, the world was perfect until we ruined it with sin. Christians say we severed our relationship with the Creator and that had a dreadful, powerful impact on the whole planet. But Plato looked at that same imperfection and he explained it a little bit differently. He noticed that the world was full of imperfections and so he started to ask the question why. He wasn't just asking why is the world imperfect. What he was actually asking is, How do I know that this is not perfect? How do I recognize imperfection? I mean, Plato is asking, who's to say the world isn't perfect just the way it is? What makes me think there's room for improvement? And if something's not perfect, how do you know that? How do you recognize imperfection? That's kind of the way that Plato was thinking. So think about some object in your house, like your kitchen table, okay? Think about your kitchen table. Unless it's brand spanking new, there's going to be a few issues with your table. Maybe there are some scratches in the finish. Maybe one of the legs is wobbly, or maybe there's a piece of wood missing from that place where you bashed into the leg with your vacuum cleaner. No matter how nice your table is, if you look at it carefully, you're going to find some flaws somewhere on that table. But how do you know it's a flaw? Unless you have some idea of what perfection would look like. If that illustration doesn't work for you, let's think about the human body. If you're somewhere past middle age, chances are something doesn't work like it used to. Maybe your knee hurts or your back hurts or your eyesight isn't quite as good as it used to be. There's going to be something to you that's less than perfect, I mean, if you're anywhere past 18 years of age. But ask yourself, how do you know it's not perfect? I mean, you do remember being younger, but apart from that, how do you know that it could be better? How do you know that it's imperfect unless you have some concept of what perfection would be? And that's kind of the way Plato was thinking. That was his starting point. He said that we can sense imperfection because somewhere out there in the universe, there is something perfect you can compare it to. And that perfect thing exists in the spiritual realm. Now, Plato said our physical, material world is imperfect. It's full of broken stuff and mistakes. But the spiritual world, out there somewhere, is perfect. And the reason we know there's something wrong with our world is because we have some vague idea of the spiritual world. Now, from a purely logical point of view, Plato kind of makes sense. He basically breaks the universe into two separate compartments, the imperfect material world where you and I live and the perfect spiritual world, which he said is just out there somewhere. The spiritual world is full of ideals or perfect things and ideas, and our physical world is full of forms, stuff that looks like the ideal from the spiritual world. It kind of resembles it, but it's imperfect because it's physical. It's made of matter. It's made of real stuff. Now, here's the way that Plato described it. He described it like living in a cave. He said that our existence is like being chained to a rock near the back of the cave. And the only view that you and I have is the back wall of the cave. But there's a fire behind us that lights up the wall, and every so often, something or somebody walks in front of the fire, and we see a shadow on the wall. The shadow, he said, that's our world. We get a pretty good representation of reality from the spiritual world, but the shadow's not the real thing. The real thing, the spiritual world, he said, is behind us somewhere, and we can't quite see it. Now, in later years, there was a movement that made its way into early Christianity that really promoted this kind of thinking, and it was a group known as the Gnostics, that's G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S, Gnostics. It, it wasn't really a coordinated global movement as such. It was more of a loose collection of groups who adopted Gnostic thinking. And like Plato, the Gnostics said that our material world is imperfect. And to that point, I'd have to agree. Our world is imperfect. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that out. But the Gnostics took it one step further— They said that since the world is imperfect, it must have been made by an imperfect lesser God. Some of them called him the Demiurge. That's the name they gave him. They claimed the reason Jesus had to come to this world was to enlighten us spiritually and show us the perfect world that exists beyond our physical existence. In essence, you know what they were doing? They were pitting Jesus against the Creator. They said Jehovah is a jealous petty God who made the material world and got things all wrong, but Jesus is perfection embodied. Well, they didn't really want to admit Jesus came in a perfect body, but they said Jesus is perfection and he came to show us the higher path. And the reason we call them Gnostics is because they believe that the path to salvation came through knowledge. And Gnosis was the Greek word for knowledge. So they're Gnostics, knowledge-based. So obviously, if you're a biblical Christian, you would disagree with this because you know from passages like John 1 and Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 that Jesus is not pitted against the Creator. Jesus is the Creator. But still, I I think I'm going to demonstrate that Platonic thinking has had considerable influence on you, even if you don't agree with that part. And when we come back from the break, I'll show you exactly what I mean.
1: Life and its daily challenges can weigh us down, even when we have the best of intentions, leaving us with more questions than answers. Is it possible to have true peace and happiness in life? Are you searching for answers to this and other of life's most challenging questions? The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers you are looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888 four five six seven nine two two for your free Discover Bible guides. Study online or on our secure website or have the free guides mailed right to your home. There is never a cost or obligation. The Discover Bible Guides are our free gift to you. Find answers in guides like The Secret of Happiness and Is God Fair? You'll find answers to the things that matter most to you in each of the 26 Discover Bible Guides. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions.
0: Okay, we're back from the break, and I hope you took down the information because that Discover Bible School is really a great way for you to become thoroughly familiar with all the major themes of the Bible, including the stuff I'm talking about today. Now, before the break, I was telling you about Plato and his theory of forms, this idea that our physical world is imperfect and that it's a shadow of some higher reality that exists out there somewhere. To the Christian way of thinking, it does make a bit of sense because we do believe that our world has been compromised, that because of sin, our world is only a shadow of what it used to be. But the Greeks would argue that the world was made imperfect, that imperfection is part of the design, and that's where Plato and the book of Genesis part company. In Genesis chapter 1, when God creates this world, you'll notice he finishes every single day by saying, it is good. And then at the end of creation, on the sixth day, he steps it up a notch and he says, it is very good. So if you compare that to Plato and the Greek philosophers, if you compare that to the way the Gnostics were talking—the people who said the world was made imperfect—you'll see the difference. In essence, the Gnostics were pinning the blame for sin and suffering on the Creator of this world because He made the world the way it is. But the Bible explains it differently. It says that you and I were created perfectly and given the ability to choose. We were moral-free agents, and we decided of our own free will to sever our relationship with the Creator— The blame for sin, the blame for suffering, the blame for imperfection, it lies with us. But, you know, if you listen to people today, it's obvious that, like the Gnostics, sometimes we feel the need to pin the blame on God. We have shelves of books written today by the modern atheists who say they don't believe in God. Yet, when I read what they write, when I listen to them talk, it seems like a lot of them are angry at God for making the world the way it is. They pin the blame on Him. When things go wrong, when our own personal world collapses, we shake our fist at heaven and we ask God, what are you doing? You see, we attribute the imperfection of our planet to the God who made it. And to some extent, that's kind of like the Gnostics. It's kind of like Greek thinking. It's not biblical thinking. Of course, it is a bit of a stretch to pin all the blame for this on Plato, because you'd be hard-pressed to find him actually saying that the Creator blew it. But it was his theory that created a platform for that kind of thinking, and the Gnostics, who became a problem by the time Paul was writing his letters, absolutely did say that kind of stuff. But you know, it goes even further, and now I'm hoping to challenge your thinking. After hundreds and hundreds of years, Greek thinking has seeped into our thought patterns to the point where we actually misread key portions of the Bible, and we don't even realize we're doing it. So I'm going to challenge you this week to pull out a Bible and have another look at some passages you may have been taking for granted. But just before I show you those passages— Let's go back to the Greek philosophers and take this Platonic theory of forms, the theory of shadows, one step further. Remember, to their way of thinking, the physical world is imperfect and maybe even evil, but the spiritual world is perfect and good. Plato and his friends would have applied this same principle to your material human body. They said your physical body is imperfect But in order for you to know it's imperfect, there must be a perfect version of you somewhere in this universe, somewhere in the spiritual realm. And that perfect version, of course, they said, is the human soul, a non-material part of you that leaves when you die and goes up to a higher spiritual plane. And of course, that's completely in line with Christian thinking, right? Except that it creates an interesting problem in the book of Genesis— When you read the creation account, there is absolutely no suggestion that God intended for two distinct realms. He called his creation very good. He labeled it perfect, and it was completely physical. When Christians go to a funeral, though, we talk as if leaving your body is achieving perfection. But in Genesis, we were perfect, and we were utterly physical. Pay attention to Genesis. There are no ghosts in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were perfect the way they were made, and there is no suggestion that their souls were ever going to leave their bodies. And I don't know about you, but I find this fascinating, because why would we go on to eternity as ghosts now when that was never the plan in the first place? Just go and take a look at Genesis. I think you're going to see what I mean. The world is a very physical place the way God made it, and it's perfect. It's not what the Greeks taught, it's not what the Gnostics taught, but it is what the Bible teaches. We were never, ever meant to exist as ephemeral spirits. We were made to be flesh and blood, physical human beings. We lived in a real world, and that was God's idea of perfection. And the only hint, the only hint you can find in the book of Genesis that there might be a disembodied spirit that could leave your body is found in chapter 2, right at the end of the creation week. And as soon as I come back from this break, I'll show you what it says, and you tell me if it was ever God's plan for you to be a ghost. So don't go away. I'm coming right back.
1: Do you feel as if you have more questions than answers in your life? Where is God when people suffer? Can I find real happiness? And is there any hope for our chaotic world? Are you searching for answers to these and other of life's biggest questions? The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or pick up the phone and call us at 888-456-7922 for your free Discover Bible Guides. 888-456-7922 Study online on our secure website or have the free lessons mailed right to your home. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions.
0: Okay, we are back from the break and now it's time to go to the book of Genesis and look at the one passage that might suggest that God created human beings with a spirit that can leave the body. And it's important that we look at this because the way the Bible reads, God actually created us to live in a distinctly physical world, a world without death, which means there would never be a reason for a ghost to leave your body. So let's take a look at Genesis 2, and I'm going to read now from the old King James version because that's actually where some of the confusion comes from. This is Genesis 2 verse 7. I want you to listen carefully. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And it's that word soul that people dwell on. Now, I don't know about you, but the word soul tends to make me think of a disembodied spirit because that's actually what I was taught in Sunday school. The soul is something that leaves the body. But if you pay attention to the language of the Bible, It's still distinctly physical. It doesn't say man received a living soul. It doesn't say he was infused with a living soul. It says man became a living soul. And that's different. If you check some of the modern Bible translations, you'll see that the translators have changed this to make it right. I mean, just listen to the English Standard Version. This is a really good translation. Genesis 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. See, the fact is, the word we translated soul in the King James Bible is nephesh, and nephesh is simply a term for something that has the gift of life. So in Genesis 1 verse 20, God says, let the waters swarm with living creatures, and the word is nephesh. The living creatures are nephesh. In Genesis 2.19, when Adam names the animals, the Bible says he named every Nephesh, every living creature. When Abraham took his family to the land of Canaan, the Bible says he took every Nephesh with him, every living member of his family. This is not a word that describes a ghost. This is a word that actually emphasizes physical life. This refers to a living, breathing creature. The fact is... The Bible describes physical perfection in the Garden of Eden, and then it describes physical perfection again at some point in the future. In fact, let me show you something from the book of Isaiah that makes it really clear that God's plan, His ultimate plan for you, is not some ethereal, spooky existence, but a real physical place. In fact, the way the Bible reads, it's obvious that God intends to put us back into the Garden of Eden. I mean, just listen to what the prophet Isaiah said about your future existence. This is in Isaiah chapter 65. It's verse 17. God says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. So, so you'll notice there's a new earth. God is planning for a real physical existence. And Isaiah makes that really clear just a few verses later, verse 21. He says, They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. This is not the spooky realm of the Greek afterlife. This is not pagan mythology. The Bible's picture of the next life is very physical. It is very real. In fact, if you read the Bible carefully, you'll notice the primary motif for the next life is the resurrection of the body. Jesus came back from the dead as a real physical person. Touch me and see, he said to the disciples, because a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones. And then he eats something to make sure that we get the point. And the Bible's promise, Philippians 3.20, is that you and I are going to get a physical body like his. But of course, that's not what I was taught in Sunday school. I was taught that our next life is a ghostly disembodied experience— but the only problem with that thinking is that it's profoundly unbiblical. It's actually more in tune with Greek philosophy than it is with Jesus. Now, of course, there, there are a handful of passages in the Bible that make it seem like the Greeks were right, and if we had time right now, we could go through every last one of them and see if that's really true. But we don't have that kind of time, and because I'm fighting the clock, I'm going to do this. Let me give you a challenge. Go through your Bible and look. Read the passages that deal with who we are, how we're made, where we're headed. Read the first few chapters of Genesis. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul describes the second coming of Christ and a very physical resurrection of the dead. Notice how the Bible tells us that God plans to raise us incorruptible from the dead. He's going to fix the imperfections that happened because of our sin. He's going to abolish suffering and disease and death— And he's going to put things back the way they were before we damaged his creation in a thousand different ways. Go back. Read Isaiah 35. Read Isaiah 65. Then read John chapter 11, where Martha explains when and how she expects to see her dead brother. At the resurrection, she says. Read 1 Thessalonians 4, which gives us a physical resurrection. And then ask yourself, How in the world did we get this idea that God's future plan for us is to live as a ghost? It's not in the Bible. And if you have the time, go back and read what some of the early Christians wrote as they were defending their faith against the pagans. Justin Martyr actually admired the Greek philosophers, but he says, Look, you've got it wrong. You Greeks plant your hopes in the immortality of the soul, but Christians depend on a physical resurrection. And that's how our Christian forefathers thought in the first few generations. So please, just go back and study. And if you discover I'm wrong, okay, you discover I'm wrong. But what I think you're going to find is that the Bible is very physical. And that doesn't change a single doctrine of the Christian faith. You are still saved by grace through faith. Jesus is still God the Son. You know, if anything, this will strengthen your Christian belief because you suddenly have a real, physical Jesus who is coming back for real, physical people. We are actually more grounded in reality than we've been preaching all these years because if I read my Bible right, this means that Jesus has actually opted to become one of us for all time. Listen, I guess one of the most convincing things for me is this. If we had never sinned, we would have never died. And if we weren't supposed to die, then there was never a reason for a ghost to leave your body, ever. It wasn't part of the plan. There is no reason for it. According to the Bible, you are a real person, a living creature. And in the earth made new, that's still what you're going to be. Look, I love Greek philosophy as much as the next guy. But you've got to know that the Greeks, as smart as they were, did not know the God of Abraham. Now, they were well on their way to finding him because they were actually starting to find the petty gods of Mount Olympus to be a little bit embarrassing, but they weren't quite there, and their analysis of the imperfect world, their analysis of sin and suffering and pain, it was just incomplete. They were doing the best they could with the knowledge they had. But what we did was import their thinking into Christianity when our barbarian ancestors made the switch. It was really just that simple. And I don't know about you, but I'd rather just deal in reality. I'd rather bank on a real existence the way the Bible talks about it. The thought that my future is real, well, that just seems more appealing. And I know this leaves all sorts of unanswered questions, so I want you to think about this as the beginning of your search. In fact, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to offer you a chance to get the Discover Bible course for absolutely nothing— And if you want to listen to this broadcast again, you can always go to our website and get it as a podcast so you can study it more deeply. And you might want to look for another program called Things That Go Bump in the Night so that you can compare what I said there to what we studied today. But for now, I do have to sign off. The clock has run out. I'm out of time. So until we meet again right here, I'm Sean Boonstra. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Voice of Prophecy.
1: Are you searching for answers to life's most challenging questions? Answers to help you make sense of the chaos in today's world. Answers to the deepest questions in life like, How can I know that Jesus was real? Was He more than a man? And how do I even know the stories of His time on earth are true? How can I know that the Bible is something that I can believe today? And questions like, If the Bible is true... Well, what happens next after this life? Is there really a heaven? And in this world of uncertainty, you might be wondering, is there actually a chance for true happiness in this life? Disappointments like illness and loss of employment can hang like clouds over our lives. Life's daily routine challenges can be overwhelming, and even the things that once made us happy can begin to seem empty. Is it really possible to have a happy, contented life in such an uncertain world? Well, if you're searching for answers to these and other of life's biggest questions, we are here to help. The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at our toll-free number, 888 456 7922 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Study online at our website, BibleStudies.com, or have the free guides mailed right to your home. There is never a cost or obligation. The Discover Bible Guides are our free gift to you. At BibleStudies.com, you'll find answers in guides like A Second Chance at Life and Does My Life Really Matter to God? Answers to the things that matter most to you in each of the 26 Discover Bible Guides. The major themes of the Bible come to life as we study together guides like When Jesus Comes for You and From Guilty Sinner to Forgiven Saint. At BibleStudies.com you will find the Discover Bible Guides in nearly 50 languages, including Spanish, Japanese, Tagalog, and Russian. Now, this is a great resource for the family member or friend that you know is looking for answers but struggles with English. At BibleStudies.com, click on the interactive world map and find the language that you're looking for. And we have lessons just for the kids in your life. Your kids will love KidZone at BibleStudies.com. They'll enjoy the colorfully illustrated stories and interactive lessons in the 14 Own Bible Guides. And while you're online, be sure to visit us at VOP.com. At VOP.com, you'll find audio archives of this program, the latest ministry news, and resources to help you dig deep into God's Word. Begin your journey to discover answers to life's deepest questions and log on today to Bible Studies